0: This episode is sponsored by Schneider Electric, a recognized global leader in sustainability. With the SEC's climate disclosure rule, now is the time for businesses to get their data and strategy in order. To get started, visit se.com slash climate risk.
1: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Lucas Joppa on normalizing the planet economy, VCs invest in net zero emissions, when economic justice meets ecological regeneration, and how much is the world's most productive river worth? We're going with the flow this week on 350. It's April 28th, 2023, the end of another month. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us and joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, tending to her May flowers is Greenbiz editorial director Heather Clancy. Hey Heather.
0: Hey, Joel. I do actually have flowers I need to plant later. <laughs> they just came. So, yeah. these are seeds.
1: How are you? Seeds are or, or, or No, they're
0: or? they're they're rooted. I yeah. I I buy um, a fair amount of perennials and I just uh, ordered some perennials that I need to get into the ground soon. Uh, trying to up my uh, pollinator quotient, actually. Um, I have a lot of very dry, sunny areas that could be good for butterfly bushes and Oof. echinacea and so forth. So I need to
1: fill them up. Fill Sounds them up. lovely. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and on a sort of related topic, you were at a company this <laughs> week called Modern Meadow. Wow.
0: <laughs> Modern Meadow, which has nothing to do with planting flowers, but- uh, um, yeah, I in in by the way in Nutley, New, New Jersey, okay. <laughs> that was the town it was in. Um, I yeah, so Modern Meadow is one of the uh, you wrote about uh, this category a few years ago for State of Green Business, SynBio synthetic biology companies, and the particular ingredient they're working on is collagen, which is a big deal when it comes to lots of different things beauty products of course like that's the that's what the normal like re- regular citizen will think of but it's also huge in um medicine and like wellness products um and believe it or not um this company actually started 10 years ago developing collagen for uh alternative leather fake leather if you will or whatever uh, bio leather I, I don't know what the proper term is So yeah, they're 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 really close to me, and they they had a a little sneak peek of their labs. They let some uh, some of us in just to look. And this is something this is an area I've been thinking about a lot more. just if you if you want to change these processes, you have to also change what's in the 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 you know in these products and the ingredients. And it's just really really hard work and very much a business to business play. Very cool company. I'm really happy I went.
1: And collagen is is currently only made from animal based products, um, and it's, I know the uh, yeah. gelatin is a derivative of, of of collagen, and that's made from boiling animal bones it, and cartilage and skin for several hours, hours, and then it, it, you know letting it cool and set. It,
0: it's it's a big deal. It's a um it, it yeah it's like there's so many implications this term in terms of animal welfare and and so forth, but also. Um, the other challenge is there actually are a lot of companies working on plant-based collagen, and I'm putting that in parentheses. Um, and it turns out, unfortunately, that um, <laughs> there's also this link, which I did not know about until recently, between collagen and deforestation. There's a lot of direct links between the activities Um yeah. You know, so there's just there's so many reasons to address this. This particular company, they're really working at the DNA level. It's it's a precision fermentation process. They they've got all of these um, signatures. there was a joke at the lunch we were having. They could take penguin collagen and inject it into the yeast and and develop ew. that. Yeah, I know. Ew, right? But um, anyway, but the, one of the the coolest things that that um that came up during our conversation, I'm going to definitely write about this more, is that. Their process allows you to combine things that you actually can't currently combine. So, you don't you're not a woman of a certain age, Joel. Uh, I am very aware of of all of the products out there in the market. You know, hy- hyaluronic acid and collagen, and you know the anti aging movement, and which is becoming a big deal and a lot of products coming to market. I didn't know this, but you actually cannot combine collagen from an animal with hydrolonic acid. So you can't put them in, in the same product. They, they're sort of incompatible. But hmm. this company is um, working on a process that lets you combine them. So with with their approach, with this fermentation approach. So it's just very fascinating. And it's um, it's this whole movement, you know, we hear so much about the food applications for this. Um, and there's just so much activity on materials and ingredients right now. I'm, I'm really excited to start digging into that more.
1: Well, and, and doing all that without animals. Well, make no bones about it. We're going to go over to the Week in Review. Wow. <laughs> Sorry.
0: That was a good segue, but 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 we're going to stick with science, right? For our yeah. first story.
1: Well, we're going to talk about money across all three of these stories, finance, uh, as it relates to a number of different things. And um, first one is a company that you've spent a lot of time with, and we, we write about a lot, uh, Microsoft. Um, well, actually, uh, it, the former uh, chief sustainability officer at Microsoft, uh, who uh, jo- Lucas Joppa, who did some really interesting work there, uh, now is one of several uh, of... Uh, CSO types who is now in uh, in finance, private equity, or venture investing. Uh, we have a number of people who have gone from the corporate side to that side. But um, yeah, uh, Nico McCross and uh, our manager of sustainable finance and ESG wrote th- did an interview with Lucas. I I thought it was really interesting, but I, I'd love to hear your take on this first, Heather.
0: Yeah, so I love this interview um, because I really did enjoy talking to Lucas when he was at Microsoft, and he was this he was like um, one of their first scientists. Like, actually, they've always had data scientists, right? So from from as long back as I can remember, you know, just tons of innovation work going on in their labs and analytics. And, um, you know, the the Mirvold brothers <laughs> were there for a long time. They had all these degrees in, like, anthropology and archaeology. I mean, like, they had all these crazy degrees that were not related to software. But, um, but Lucas uh, he has a... A doctorate in ecology, right? And so when they when they hired him at Microsoft, they hired him to really think about not just the classic quote sustainability end quote types of problems, but like really what happens when you, you think about creating a company that should really be living in uh what he calls the planet economy. Like when you're thinking about the planet and and what you should be how you should be operating to be not just you know better for the you know better kind of better or you know less bad for the planet but really you know you're coexisting with the planet and you're 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 creating a model that that is regenerative like and this goes to the you know like that word that's getting bandied around a lot right now but he you know he spent his time there and I I love that he's gone to this company because he's basically gone to a um essentially what is a a firm that's focusing on software and gaming, I believe is their other really core area. And and he's looking at the companies and basically they're they're trying to help these companies be net zero from the beginning. So what what does that require? How does how does this company get operated? So they're 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 looking at the governance of these of these investments from the beginning and trying to figure out not only to, A, you know, how can you operate in a more regenerative manner, but what about your products and services? Like, how could they help the planet? You know, and and so I think probably one of the service lines that Lucas Chapa is probably best known for is the whole AI for Earth. All
1: oh, right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, That that whole movement at at Microsoft, and when it really started thinking about how do analytics get used to help track climate change and look at the imagery and predict where things might change and or. or like get in front of things and not allow them to happen. Cause you think, oh, you know, this is going to happen. Okay. Let's get in front of this and not, and allow it not to happen, you know, like get, get, you know, prevent it from happening. So yeah. And this, I love this interview because it really gives you a sense of how he's applying what he learned at Microsoft to much smaller companies. And I just, well, yeah.
1: I, yeah. Yeah. And he talks about the fact that at Microsoft, he could only affect one company and now mm-hmm. he's affecting dozens of companies. And, um, uh, and uh, probably, you know, in, in a very different way as, he, as uh, the, uh, let's see what his title is now. He's uh, at, at a company called uh, Haveli. I Haveli think Investments, yeah. Right, right. They're a private equity firm mm-hmm. uh, that invests in, as you said, enterprise software and gaming companies. Uh, and, and he talks about the fact that we, we, we need to move from information about people to information about the planet economy. In other words, the natural resources, uh, and this is something. Natural capital is something we've been talking about for a long time, but and we're going to be getting into this uh, actually at our recently announced uh, event, Bloom, which will be taking place in October, which is at the intersection of business and biodiversity and finance. Um, I, I really think he's leading the way on how do we measure, how do we talk about it, how do we look at uh, at, at the value of things, and and how does that uh, go? Uh, be incorporated into our uh, financial accounting and mm-hmm. reporting systems, uh, and it's not just carbon. Uh, yeah. and he makes that he emphasizes that yes. several several times. That <laughs> there's there, there's certainly other things to talk about here, but let's talk about a story from Leah Garden, our climate tech reporter, did about a, a new a initiative called the Venture Capital Alliance, an organization of 23 global venture capital firms uh, that are looking to uh, support. Early stage companies on their missions, scope one, two, and three, if you know what those mean, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, and they're going to be sharing best practices and collecting, interpreting, and reporting climate data. Um, and yeah, they have some 62 or so billion dollars in assets. That's it's always hard to know what what impact that actually has in terms of the number of companies. But this is interesting because the uh, you know one of the dirty secrets of climate tech, for for starters, are the old what we used to call clean tech is that a lot of the companies in those startups in those spaces are not very clean they're not incorporating sustainability into their operations and supply chains and 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 you know throughout it, and how they spend money and and evaluate uh, progress and success um you know they're obviously focused on growth and scaling and getting you know stable and Getting their first products to market and all of those things, and sustainability is kind of an afterthought. So I love that these venture capital firms are, are starting to bake it into uh, how they invest and what are the commitments that they're going that they're making themselves, and then we'll be asking their portfolio companies to make. Mm-hmm.
0: It's also I agree, um, and actually I'll just use a quick example from the visit I just did with Modern Med- Meadow. They're ten years old they don't have you know they're actually going to be working towards a b, uh, b corp certification and they they have they just published their first impact report you know but it it does take a long time to build up the processes we know this ourselves i mean not a lot of company have companies have the processes in place so you kind of have to think about these things like hol- more holistically but not necessarily have all the the frameworks in place that maybe a larger company will have this is an effort to to help make that happen earlier. The other thing that's at play here is it's not just their own um operational ethos. The other thing that these folks are going to really looking more carefully at is the claims that these climate tech companies make. So there's a framework that they're creating that will basically help make it, you know, as as, as you're doing your due diligence to make an investment in one of these companies, like what is exactly the impact? Like, this is what they're saying. Is this possible? What's the real, you know, so to allow the potential investors to really get a better picture of the actual climate impact or biodiversity impact, for, for that matter, that a startup might have. So it's kind of those two frames of reference. And I love this because there's been some early work going on uh, here, but kind of in pockets and each individual firm has had that kind of their own approach. And so this is really pointing to the fact that, okay, yeah, we need to do this and let's get our our ducks in the row, if you will, and get get our story straight um, about what we're asking for. So I I love this
1: um, alliance. So many uh, startups uh, in the the climate tech space tout their uh, the emission savings for, mm-hmm. that the products will engender that mm-hmm. will save the equivalent of uh, a billion no, no. cars on the road yeah. or whatever it is, really? Um, and no, yeah. not really a billion. But, um, uh, but they don't necessarily factor into those claims the impact of what they're doing in their yeah. supply chains mm-hmm. and their operations, mm-hmm. uh, what are the uh, you know, carbon or water intensity impacts of what they actually make. Uh, and uh, is that sustainable? And is that uh, have those been optimized or do those need to be addressed or even rethought? And so uh, the fact that there's uh, going to be some uh, pre-investment considerations, there's a methodology that this uh, VCA, as it's called, the uh, venture capital Alliance will be using. And then the, the, they'll actually be helping their portfolio companies set net zero targets and then assist them in achieving these goals. So this is, uh, I just, I think, a really uh, exciting, uh, as we uh, development as we as climate tech continues to just rise up even though the investments have been down this year the number of startups continues to grow and and many of their products are, are or soon will be coming to market so this is this is none too soon to be thinking about this but let's flow over to this last story which is uh, from Stefan Lovegren, uh, who's a research scientist at the University of Nevada Reno College of Science it talks about the value of a river. Uh, pr- you know, how much is the world's most productive river worth? In this case, he's talking about the Mekong River that flows through Southeast Asia, uh, Vietnam, and Cambodia, and other countries. Um, and they did a, a project to figure that out, uh, focusing on Cambodia and Vietnam. Uh, what is the value that the rivers have for, you know, f- particularly for fishing and farming? How do you put an economic value on that? So that you know, if you at some point you can make calculations based on investment, investing in uh, in new technologies or cleaning up a river, and you know how uh, uh, how do you, how do you make those calculations? And I think it's really interesting. And, and I'll say that this isn't exactly new. I mean, the concept certainly is isn't new. They've been talking about. Um, the value of nature, ecological economics for, for a long, long time. Um, uh, and there've been lots of, of, of stories and, and research done on this. Um, uh, back in 1992, there was a, a study by the American forestry association that looked at the monetary benefits of trees. So they found that a single tree provides $73 worth of air conditioning, $75 worth of erosion control, $75 worth of wildlife shelter and $50 worth of air pollution reduction. And then over, oh, that's $273. You do that over 50 years at a 5% interest rate and it came up to a $57,151. This was uh, 31 years ago. So I'm sure it's gone up since then. But uh, this is it, it, the fact that, you know, rivers which provide all kinds of economic benefits, no one's figured it out.
0: Definitely. And I just... I, yeah, this is not a new concept, but I love the work that this particular group is doing to just really point out all the different elements that need to be considered. And I love how they put it um, in, in terms of ecological and biological riches, right? So, you know, like a thousand species of fish in this particular system. Um, the annual fish catch is 2 million metric Tons. That's in the lower basin alone, just below China, um, and you know you look at some of these numbers. Um, but then you think about, okay, so what's the financial worth worth of the of that fish catch? Well, you might not really even know because the many of the individuals that are fishing are subsistence fishers, right? So they're they're fishing to to live. And so how do you put a value on that, um, that life, you know, sustaining life? Uh, and I I think one of the most interesting things for me, the, the data points, because there's a ton of really interesting data points in here. Um, according to the analysis, the river in its natural state delivers 160 million tons of sediment each year. And that, of course, is what enables the, the rich agricultural lands below, you know, all, all along The flow of this of this wonderful system and but then they go on to say dams let through only about 50 million tons and then sand mining in Cambodia and Vietnam extracts 90 million so like pretty quickly you see that more you know the sediment is being blocked so like it's not reaching its natural destination what does that mean anyway I just think um I love that also this is happening at the academic level. So because as more people start learning these method methodologies, then they will become part of business management. When one hopes that um, that they would be. So yeah, I think it's just one of those this is one of those really thought-provoking pieces that just sets you back and um, makes you want to press reset. sucker for entrepreneurship, especially the kind that links innovation with climate action. So I was intrigued to receive the galley for a new book out last month titled Working to Restore, Harnessing the Power of Regenerative Business to Restore the World. The author, Esha Chabra, is a journalist who has spent the past decade writing about sustainability and mission-driven brands for the New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Fast Company, and a range of other publications. She joins me to chat about what inspired this book. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: It is. I am actually really excited about this conversation because this is sort of, I love reading about companies that are doing good by being different and that have a real mission-driven thesis. Um, So I wanted to go right to the word, though, in in your title that I was very intrigued by, um, regenerative. So it's, it's often used in a very environmental context, uh, at least in the green biz community. So how do you
2: define it? When I started writing this book and researching the book, it was in 2018. And all the inter- all the interviews I did, all the entrepreneurs I spoke to, they all pretty much despised the word sustainability. They didn't want to use it. They were like, what are we sustaining? It's a broken system. And so the word I was actually gravitating towards was restorative um and then i heard about regenerative through regenerative agriculture and that was really taking off and as i actually literally looked those two words up in the dictionary um the publishers and i agree that that was the essence of the book i mean these companies are not just thinking about environment they're thinking about how they treat their employees they're thinking about their supply chain how they do fulfillment and so to regenerate means to bring life into something right to restore is to restore an imbalance and that's Far more meaningful and holistic than sustainable. Um, so I felt like that was the right term for the subtitle, and it also appears throughout the book.
0: Yes, I love that. And I love also that you really intentionally set out to focus on some really specific industries, right? Um, you mentioned agriculture, and that is actually food is one of them, but the other ones um, are fashion, travel, health, finance. Those are some of the the top ones. How did you pick those areas as a place to focus, um, you know, in in terms of the businesses you were looking for and in terms of the proving your thesis, essentially?
2: I wanted most of the examples to be things that we interact with on a regular basis. Um, I really want this book to be something that sort of breaks through the bubble of those of us who live and breathe sustainability to a consumer, to a reader who's just perhaps curious on the topic, but doesn't know every single nitty gritty detail. And so coffee, chocolate, fashion, travel, these are all things that we all do in our daily lives or you know, purchase. And so that's where I really thought about what are the industries that we can showcase where it's very relatable for people, but it also furthers the thesis that this is not just happening in fashion and food, which I think get most of the attention, but it's really happening across the board. Um, so this is not for a specific niche. This is really, if you want to build this kind of business, you can frankly do it in any industry.
0: Yeah, I was actually really intrigued by travel. And I, I probably will ask you a follow up um, in a moment on that one. I also no- noticed that you just use the word sustainability, which I use all the time, too. But I, I would love to find a, a much better word. I'm, I'm hoping that we can start using that word regenerative for the reasons you stated in your explanation. I... We've got 12 to 15 minutes, and so we obviously can't talk about all the companies you use as examples, Um, but I would like to ask you this question, right? How did you make your selections, right? So the examples you use that you do use, how did you pick
2: them? This was a long process. I mean, I had a much longer list and I kind of had to whittle it down, but I had seen that there had been books written about corporates and the sort of CSR initiatives, and I didn't want to get into that for various reasons. I felt like startups were too young to say that this model really works. So I looked at companies that were medium sized companies. They'd been around for about seven years or a decade or so. They'd shown that their model had worked to some degree. It's not to say that they're perfect or they're never going to fail. It's a business. It can always fail, Um, but really honed in on companies that were more medium-sized. And that also iterated one thing that I heard from one of the co-founders when I was doing the interviews was that you know, the world doesn't need more multinationals or conglomerates that are so-called ethical, eco-friendly, sustainable, whatever you want to use. But we really just need more medium sized companies that are doing these things and kind of replicated across the board or across the world. That model is, quote unquote, more sustainable down the road. Um, So that's why I also really focused on companies that Perhaps weren't so far along in their journey, but had proven that the model worked in a certain geography or in a certain subset.
0: You and I think I remember reading at one point, it, like when you when you know a company's been around five years or so, that they're they're probably legit. <laughs> they're going to be around, and I, I believe I know there's some stats out on the average lifespan of companies today in today's business climate, and it's not that long. So that that is, I guess, probably preteen in, in the, the average life st- span of a company. Um, I want to actually follow up on something you said though, the multinationals, right? So one of the things that I see happening with the multinationals is how they influence their suppliers. So maybe the, maybe are these companies that you picked are they really focused on local economies and therefore really their own world? or do they sit in the supply chains of some of the bigger companies? Like, I'm just curious, you know, from your, from your
2: research. That's a good point. Um, there is an example in there. There's a company called Falcon Coffee, which is out of the UK. It's in Lewis, UK. They are basically a middleman in the world of coffee, but they want to redefine what a middleman is. So they're supplying all the big third wave roasters that you've heard of, from the Blue Bottles to the Stump Towns to the Allegro. Um, so that's an example of someone who is working in a much larger supply chain. Um, but they're an independent entity, you know, as a business. They have their own process of making their decisions, which gives them their own kind of freedom and legitimacy. Um, so yes, there are a couple examples like that, but I would say the vast majority are not necessarily sitting within a large multinational.
0: How much did a certification my, uh, matter to you? So, right, you mentioned also in your narrative, you know, the B-Lab movement, right? The B Corp, benefit corporations, B corporations. How important do you think that designation
2: is that third party designation this is a really complicated topic and i'll try to keep it as brief as possible (laughs) because we don't have all day but i think b corps do bring a certain legitimacy and a certain authenticity and i think they are important um because when they started out and what their intention has been, has been to look at beyond just the supply chain, right? It's everything, it's who you bank with, it's how you treat your workers, it's everything. That holistic approach I think is really valuable. Most of the companies that are dealing with an agricultural supply chain that I spoke to felt like certifications were really just a starting point. It's a good thing, you should probably consider it um, to make it easy to convey to buyers and consumers. But is that as far as you should go? No, you should definitely exceed that if you can. And many of them are pushing for that. The other word that I heard more than certifications that, you know, all these entrepreneurs are really thinking about was traceability. And, you know, with traceability comes transparency. So it's more about, you know, there's one company there, for example, Veja, where they just had on their website the receipts of the cotton that they've bought from their farmers. And they said, yes, you know, we're happy to comply with certain certifications, but this to us is the most important thing. Um, so there's nuance. And I also think it varies depending on which supply chain you're looking at.
0: You mentioned authenticity, right? So how do you know a company is authentically regenerative?
2: I would say that for me, it has been a process of spending a lot of time with these companies. I mean, that's why it was important to do the reporting in the old fashioned way to go meet with them in person, see their workplace, see their supply chains. Um, I went to a lot of remote locations, like with Veja, I went to the Amazon and saw their supply chain in person. And then you understand how the entrepreneur and the founder is really leading this company. And what I saw was that there's kind of a commonality between many of these entrepreneurs. They have a very regenerative mindset without necessarily calling it that, because they want to treat every aspect of their business with that kind of thought and care as much as possible, as much as is in their control. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people have asked me, like, what's the commonality in the book? I would say it's this it's this kind of vision that comes from the top down. Mm-hmm. So you've
0: actually mentioned that one company a couple of times. So could you explain a little bit more for the listeners what they focus on, Beisha?
2: Veja is a sneaker brand. Um, they've been around for, I want to say, 15 years or so, started by two young Frenchmen who decided that they would do something different in the footwear industry. They were you know, children of the late 70s, early 80s, and they Felt like we could create a sneaker in one country with the lightest footprint as possible and not put money into marketing, which is what the traditionally the fashion industry does is, you know, you have celebrities, influencers wearing clothes. They said, no, we're going to put that money back into the supply chain. So they sourced the rubber from the Amazon, which is a really interesting story, because when you go to the Amazon, you see the land that's being cleared for cattle farming. And here's a company that came in and said, no, we're going to pay you more for rubber. So you're actually working to keep these trees upright. You can support your families and support your community, and you don't need to participate in this alternative industry that's coming up. They get their cotton from organic cotton growers in northeastern Brazil, and then they manufacture the shoe in the southern part of the country. They only ship it by sea, and the fulfillment is also very thoughtful the way they do it out of Paris. So that's an example of a company where they really thought through every aspect of it. How many companies do you mention in the book? There's approximately three or four in each chapter, you know, nine, so about 30 companies in total. So how much does profit matter for these companies? I would say very much so. These are very practical people who understand that you cannot just do this as a nonprofit mission. You are building a business. So I would say the two are almost very, you know, equal. They go hand in hand, profit and purpose. That's the approach here that I think shifts this narrative because I've been reporting on this space for over a decade now, right? So I've seen the evolution from this language of microfinance and CSR and doing these initiatives on the side to really making it the core of your company. Um, so there's a there's a real understanding that, look, economics moves the needle, especially if you talk about, you know, agriculture, um, less than five percent of U.S. farmland is organic, and yet we see so much organic interest, you know, in the grocery store. Um, so you talk to the farmers, why isn't this moving faster? The economics of it is not there for some of them, right? Absolutely. Do you, I'm actually curious. Do you find that there are these
0: companies are equally spread around the world?
2: That's a good question. I mean, I haven't dived into it really in depth and looked at data or anything like that. But I did feel like there was a high concentration of them in Europe. And I don't know if that has to do with a certain, you know, political philosophy also and just an approach to, to life. Um, but yeah, there, there does seem to be a concentration of them in Europe. What do you think are the limits of
0: the regenerative movement?
2: I think you're always you're always trying to balance a lot of different things when you're building these kinds of businesses. And that can be very challenging, right? So. If you have to take on investors, that makes it complicated because then the question is around growth and scale. And so I think that's something that that's, in fact, perhaps the topic that most of these entrepreneurs are really thinking deeply about. Some companies kind of had a policy of, no, we're just going to self fund. We're going to bootstrap, take a loan or two, but we're never going to take on investors. Others did take on investors. Um, But it's really this question of growth, which I think is a very... It's a very fascinating topic because yes, you want these things to scale, but scale to what point? And then at what point do you start compromising these values? So that's why it goes back to what I said earlier, that perhaps the answer is you have many medium-sized brands like this around the world. You know, Veja cannot supply shoes to everyone. Falcon cannot supply coffee to everyone. So you can have multiple organizations like this. It's also a question of you know how much is enough um and when it comes to finance and it comes to growth i think there has to be some kind of leadership decision there that says okay we're happy at this scale we're comfortable we can manage the company well and we don't need to be in every retailer or in every geography one last question for you
0: what's the call to action for existing companies large and small. So right, we're talking about people that are starting from the beginning in this mindset. Is there hope for an existing company to become a regenerative business? Could,
2: could they switch? Absolutely, I think so. I mean, this book is all about hope and this is something that I hope that it really does drive people to think about how they can maneuver their own companies. Um, I would say rather than going to sort of um, surface level sustainability measures or just turning to offsets, really think about your own supply chain. really think about your own commission your own emissions and your own consumption first. And it seems like very obvious and it seems like baby step number one, but I do worry that there's this language of net zero and climate negative, and I can't even keep up with them now sometimes. Um, and I'm like, no, 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 just take it a step back and let's think about what all you are doing and really break it down um, and see what improvements can be had there rather than running to these alternative pro- programs. Great. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so
0: much for having me. I appreciate it. You just heard from Esha Chabra. She is the author of a new book called Working to Restore Harnessing the Power of Regenerative Business to Restore the World.
1: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. And while you're there, check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you can sign up. And we love to hear your questions, your comments, your tips. You can hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McHour. We'll see you next time.
0: This episode is sponsored by Schneider Electric, a recognized global leader in sustainability. With the SEC's climate disclosure rule, now is the time for businesses to get their data and strategy in order. To get started, visit se.com slash climate risk.